Welcome to the Citizens Report for the 7th of August 2020. I'm Elisa Barwick. Joining me today is Citizens Party Leader Craig Isherwood. Welcome, Craig. Yeah, thanks, Elisa. And on today's show, huge breakthroughs on bail-in and a people's bank. And can we avoid a repeat of Hiroshima? So firstly today, huge breakthroughs on bail-in and a people's bank. We've got two sets of very good news on two of our key campaigns to announce today. So firstly on bail-in, uh, and of course this re refers to the uh, new law passed in February 2018, which gives APRA extraordinary powers in a financial crisis, including to confiscate certain investments and potentially deposits uh, when the bank is in strife in order to recapitalise the bank. And uh, recently, one Nation Party Senator Malcolm Roberts tabled legislation to ensure that deposits are explicitly excluded from being bailed in. in the, um, there's a, been a bail-in inquiry going on into the, his bill, the Banking Amendment Deposits Bill 2020. So we've just heard in recent days that that inquiry has been extended. It was due to report on the 10th of August. It's now been extended through to the 24th of August. And we had demanded this, of course, Craig. Yeah. And we got it. So this yep. is excellent news. And it gives us a chance to demand hearings. So everyone should be prepared to call your Member of Parliament and demand that we have a hearing on this and particularly also call the members of the committee, which details are available on our website. And the reason hearings would be essential uh, is quite clear because if you go to our website, look at recent media releases, we've documented the fact that uh, there were a lot of excellent submissions um, showing the nature of the holes in the bail-in legislation which allow the potential for bail-ins to be confiscated. Uh, and the head of the committee, um, or the secretary of the committee, actually took some of the content of those submissions to this inquiry and asked APRA and Treasury to answer to some of those allegations. And while they published uh, those responses from APRA and Treasury, they didn't bother to print any of the um, retorts and refutations from a number of experts that posed the original submissions that drew these questions out. So all of these back and forth debates going on to cover the government's position on this should actually be public. And these expert witnesses who are opposing this bail-in bill uh, should actually be called to testify in public hearings that you know the public can be aware of. The list of the issue here is that the government has consistently said that on its February 2018th bill, the Valentine's Massacre bill we call it, you know, that this bill does not give APRA the power to bail in deposits. In other words, they can't take deposits. Now, we have said that is not the case. We've got legal advice to say that is not the case. So Senator Roberts' bill, all it says and all it does is says, uh, let's make sure in writing, in legislation, that people's deposits can't be bailed in. So the government's in a position now of, well, effectively, if they don't support that legislation, you know mm. that there was always an intention to bail in deposits. Now, as we've talked about on this program many times, you know, 
we're subject to international strictures of international financiers and particularly the Financial Stability Board based in the, uh, the Bank of International Settlements in Basel, uh, Switzerland, and they have put out a toolkit you know, for the Financial Resolution Toolkit in order to deal with, instead of bailing out banks, bailing them in, i.e. having access to people's deposits. So we're, you've got a situation where APRA, it is being the gatekeeper for making sure that bail-in comes into this country and we have forced these APRA uh, in the public interest and in the public spotlight to come out and prove that they're in the public interest and they're not just protecting the private banks and this international banking uh, cartel's interests of stealing people's deposits. And it's getting quite hot and it looks like, you know, the question is, amongst the politicians, will common sense prevail? Is it the common sense of the pol politicians of Australia to support the people's interests and, bio, and protect their deposits, mm. or is it to protect the financial in, uh, interests of the banks and so forth? And we're actually getting feedback from our discussions with people in Parliament that there's a consensus that is forming that there's no reason not to pass this from various parties and so forth because they really haven't got a leg to stand on well, not to pass it. It won't do their um, ambition any, any um, trouble if, no. if they are true to what they're saying. Well, the that they can't bail in deposits. The government's saying, no, 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 this bill doesn't bail in deposits. Well, that's fine, good. Let's just make sure, put it in writing. Mm. Because otherwise, the trust me, uh, just trust me with a politician is not very uh, mm. reliable. Yeah, and one of the things, of course, that APRA states is that um, not only are they beholden to protect the financial stability of the country, but they also have to protect deposits. But as legal experts have pointed out, uh, if APRA determined that a bail-in of part of depositor accounts was necessary to provide financial stability, then there's nothing in the law um, that would uh, be inconsistent with taking that decision. And this is the same thing um, that's going on in a debate that's erupted again in India at the moment, because in 2018, India um, defeated the bail-in legislation. The government ended up withdrawing it because there was such opposition from the population, from unions, even from banks, in fact, that they, they withdrew it altogether. But it's come back in a new form where the Reserve Bank of India, another member of the Financial Stability Board, is proposing a resolution authority. And one of their arguments is that, um, look, if the banks, if there's a financial crisis and the bank goes bust, you lose everything. So you'll be better off under this resolution authority if we bail in some of your money because at least you'll keep the rest of it. Um, and uh, the, one of the uh, newspapers actually said that while this new resolution bill has a, does not have a bail-in clause as the original one did, which was defeated two years ago, as the paper put it, the authority can, however, modify liabilities, which means they can set a limit to the liabilities that would be paid out. So this is exactly what bail-in is because if they determine, okay, the limit on liabilities that we will um, pay out is 60%, then you lose the other 40%. So it's exactly what bail-in is. So no doubt that is why another uh, debate has exploded over this. Of course, Lisa, the solution here isn't to discussing bail-in. It's actually another piece of legislation that we've had and have got in the Parliament on bank separation or what we, use, what we call Glass-Steagall for our new viewers. Now, this is the legislation that separates out the commercial and necessary retail banking that you have to have as part of an economy from all the merchant banking, the, the investment banking, and the speculative side of banking, which has got itself involved in, in trillions of dollars of these things called 
derivatives, which are highly speculative instruments. They're very profitable, and that's why the banks want to hang on to them. But it also puts the entire banking system at risk. So what you do is you have legislation to say, if you want to have a sane banking system, you separate out the commercial and the retail banking system. You protect that system. It's government guaranteed fully on all the deposits. Nothing is done with those deposits that isn't guaranteed. The rest of it, well, as far as the citizens' part is concerned, it can go to hell and look after itself. Mm. But it can't put its hand on the public purse and it can't put its hand on the uh, purse, people's deposits of any form. So the bank, the, the, we've got a lot of this material on our website, but that's the solution here, yep. not bailing. And the other solution is national banking. I'm going to talk about that right after this break. Welcome back to the Citizens Report. We're now going to talk about the breakthroughs in the direction of getting national banking in this country to fund the kind of economic recovery we desperately need. Um, now, two weeks ago, we discussed that the peak union body, Australian unions, had put together a national economic reconstruction plan to create jobs, revive manufacturing and build infrastructure. And in a press release on 24th July, we stated that the Australian Union should get behind the moves in federal parliament to legislate a national bank, which is legislation that will be put up soon by federal MP Bob Catter. Now, the Communications Electrical and Plumbing Union, the CEPU, has teamed up with left-wing think tank per capita to propose a postal bank. And there's a discussion paper out which says that we should establish what's called they call post bank as a full national savings and loans bank by providing Australia Post with a, a Australian deposit taking institution license, meaning it can operate as a bank. Some of the key points they make are that uh, you can't leave crucial infrastructure or essential services to the entirely private hands. Um, you need to establish competition and new standards with such a public bank. With a government guarantee, this will help us avoid a recession in, you know, through reduced lending, even a risky economic climate. And such a bank can lend for the public benefit, not just for profit. Now, they have a very interesting section where they go through, trace some of the history of uh, public banking in Australia, and they draw out some crucial points, particularly about the old Commonwealth Bank. And uh, they... They say Denison Miller and King O'Malley, who were the two key uh, founders who brought the Commonwealth Bank into life as a national credit facility, both of whom were ex-bankers, that they understood the money-creating power of banks and believed this could be utilised for the public benefit and describe how this financed the Australian war effort, agriculture, food processing, the development of the country. And one thing in particular... Um, Craig, is that they pointed to the fact that Denison Miller, the head of the bank, took a trip to London after World War I. Um, and Jack Lang said this caused near panic among London's financial elite. And this, is, this was quoted by the per capita report because Miller's idea was that the whole wealth of Australia was behind this bank. And this is the quote they used in the per capita report, which we've cited many times. The whole of the resources of Australia are at the back of this bank. And so strong as this continent is, so strong is the Commonwealth Bank. Whatever the Australian people can intelligently conceive in their minds and will loyally support, that can be done. And that really gives a sense of the power we have in this period of crisis or in any period um, to act to get the country remobilised economically. 
Yeah, Lisa, look, the, the postal bank is a brilliant idea because it uses the, 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 the widespread nature of you know, post offices to provide the banking services that have been shut down, particularly in regional areas. But it is just a postal bank, it means it takes savings and, and, and the proposal by the union, or this body per capita, has said that it can you know, eventually issue mortgages and credit cards and so forth. Well, that's fine, but that's not a national bank. A national bank is a bank that's owned by the government for the purpose of issuing large amounts of credit to spend into the productive development of the nation, particularly in infrastructure. Now, the postal banks aren't designed to do that, but they do perform, they perform a very, very useful issue, uh, you know, uh, function. Now, the, the key here, though, is a political one, Elisa. Mm. It's not a banking issue. And the fact is, over the last 40 years, you've seen these public institutions, these public banks, actually a bit longer, maybe 50 years, these public banks that are owned, in a sense, by people or, in, uh, in some cases, by you know, groups of people uh, or the government, shut down because of economic rationalism, because of this policy that's like a disease that's spread across our nation and across the world, wherever you have these public institutions, they're very profitable. So therefore the government see, oh, there's a great deal of money here, we'll privatise it, we'll sell them mm. off, right? And this is the problem. A public institution like a public bank, like a national bank, acts in the public interest and it doesn't have an interest of putting shareholders first like the private banking system. And this was a big issue when Ben Chifley was in the Royal Commission in the 1930s on the same, discussing the same issue. And he came up with the, the, uh, the idea in his report, his dissenting report, that when it comes to the benefit, public benefit that's required by a public institution like a public bank, it far outweighs anything the private banks will do because in, a, in the case of the need for credit in a, in a depression or whatever, the private banks will look after themselves first and to hell with the public. Mm. It's the opposite with a private banking institution. So a national bank owned by the government, run through political policies designed to build the nation, to increase the economic output of the nation, is, far, is, is, is what this country needs right now, particularly in the COVID-19 period. And there's a lot of traction that this idea is getting in discussions behind the scenes and across the country, and we'll have more to say that in future as it materialises. But we're seeing support from the left, as you see here, but also from the right. You know, even bankers are moving in support of this. And this is part of a global trend in the UK now. They're discussing, discussing options for a national infrastructure bank, given they've left the uh, European Union are not longer part of the European Investment Bank. And in the United States, there's a coalition for a national investment bank which is getting support from all kinds of unions and state parliaments and associations and trades councils. It's phenomenal how quick it's moving. And I just want to roll a clip here of a video they've issued in the last few days um, drumming up support for this national investment bank. House Resolution 6422 was introduced into the United States Congress outlining a $4 trillion national infrastructure bank. Not since Franklin Roosevelt has our nation used a national bank to address our country's urgent economic needs. FDR used the Reconstruction Finance Corporation to fund much of his economic miracle. The current National Infrastructure Bank is modeled on the original Bank of the United States created by Alexander Hamilton. The bank will be capitalized with existing treasury bonds, creating no new federal debt. The bank will invest $4 trillion into states and cities to build infrastructure only. 
Professional economists estimate this investment will create conservatively 25 million new jobs. So, as you can see, at least, I mean, you, there is a lot of traction for this idea of national banking and providing these large amounts of credit. Like $4 trillion right now for the United States is absolutely necessary. It's not a bailout, it's actually funding crucial infrastructure. Yeah, no, really important. Now, it's also crucial to avoid war, and that's what we're going to talk about next. Welcome back to the Citizens Report. We're now talking about can we avoid a repeat of Hiroshima? Well, let's hope so. And what we were just talking about, uh, Craig, what you were describing is we've seen an economic decline over, you know, 30, 40 years um, with economic policies and economic ideologies that have destroyed our capacity to face any kind of crisis, whether it be a pandemic or an, just an economic crisis, a war, etc. Um, and what we've called for in the latest issue of our Australian Alert Service, for which you can contact us for a copy, uh, is a vision, a future policy vision to revive this nation as we've just been discussing. Because if we don't have something like that, the danger is war breaking out, whether it be global war, civil war, as we've talked about in previous week's shows. And of course, this week, uh, 75 years ago, the US dropped bombs on Japan, which was completely unnecessary and showed a flaw in the ability to have diplomacy, which we are facing again today. And I just want to read a few quotes. One, the first from General Dwight D. Eisenhower, who said, Japan was already defeated and dropping the bomb was completely unnecessary. It was no longer mandatory as a measure to save American lives. Fleet Admiral Chester W. Nimitz said the Japanese had in fact already sued for peace. The atomic bomb played no decisive part from a purely military point of view in the defeat of Japan. Major General Curtis Lee May, the atomic bomb had nothing to do with the end of the war at all. Fleet Admiral William Halsey Jr. The first atomic bomb was an unnecessary experiment. It was a mistake to ever drop it. And these are all leading generals in the theatres of war at the time. And then General Douglas MacArthur. Japan was anxious for peace and the Pacific War should have ended months before it did. In my opinion, there was a monumental failure of statecraft on the part of the Allies in not consummating this end. Yeah, and Lisa, I think it's interesting that this week we saw an enormous explosion of ammonium nitrate in Beirut. You know, the initial thought was, oh, this is a nuclear explosion. Well, it wasn't, but it brought back the horror of mm. what happened in Hiroshima. So we have to do everything possible to condemn any move towards sort yep. of war. And the basis of cooperation to prevent it is um, brought up in another anniversary, the 15th of July, which is the 45th anniversary of the famous handshake in space, which was the docking of the Apollo and Soyuz spacecraft, so US and Russian spacecrafts. And the Russian ambassador to the US raised this in an article for Air and Space where he said, its most important lesson is that non-ideological dialogue between our countries opens broad opportunities for productive joint work. Now, I want to show a clip here which is uh, from 24th of June in the International Space Station where uh, two American astronauts who just crashed or splash landed back down to Earth this week, Bob Benkin and Doug Hurley. Bob's on the left and Doug's on the right when you see this clip. Um, and when they talk about cosmonauts and how they relied on the cosmonauts, of course, they're talking about the Russian astronauts. And it's very interesting to see how they view the current period we're in, looking at it from a standpoint of that, the kind of cooperation that they describe. Now, I, I really want to ask you, when you left Earth, it, 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 it's such a difficult time. 
here. There, there is so much division, not just in America, uh, across the whole world. The entire planet feels divided. So many countries feel divided. When you look back at planet Earth, what do you see and what do you feel? And do you have any words of encouragement for us humble Earthlings who are here right now? I think we're trying to be humble space uh, space folks as well up here. I think that Doug referred to it a little bit earlier when he talked about the time we spent out in California, you know, building a partnership and a relationship with the team of SpaceX engineers that was going to build the spacecraft that our lives were going to depend on uh, all the way into orbit and to bring us home safely. You know, we really recognize on board the International Space Station the value of working together creating some sort of common understanding and cooperation. We have cosmonaut crewmates that we work with on a routine basis during uh, the spacewalk that we'll perform later this week. We'll actually have a, a, a cosmonaut helping us get suited up and, and head out the door, making sure everything is closed up for us. And so I think that's the message that, that we would like to share, you know, with all the folks who are still back on Earth is that, you know, our success depends on cooperation and understanding and, and you know, respect for the other folks uh, that are, are doing their jobs to help us uh, come back safely or execute a spacewalk safely. And that's what it's going to take to get through these challenging times back on Earth, whether it's the pandemic or, or some of the other strife that's going on, that understanding and that cooperation and that, that need and, and effort that goes into what's required to just work together to pull off uh, things successfully is what, what we're going to have to do back on Earth as well. And hopefully we can just be an example of that and uh, one that with commercial partners or with our cosmonaut friends uh, is, a, is a great demonstration for folks around the world. And, you know, we just hope that people can look to the example of the International Space Station and the cooperation that we have with uh, five major partners in several countries uh, and, and look to that and see that you can, you can all work together for a common goal to make the world a better place. And then just by virtue of being able to look out the window, you see the world with no borders up here, and, 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 and that, that does resonate with you. And, and hopefully that message can get back down to earth that, uh, you know, we need to be able to work together for, for the common good. Now, that spirit of cooperation is still ongoing today, not just in that project, but in things like the International Thermonuclear Experimental Reactor, which is experimentation for fusion nuclear power. Um, and that's something that's being worked on between, you know, countries including the United States and Russia and China and Europe and so forth. So, you know, we can bring people together to cooperate on things for mutual benefit. And that project's going into its assembly phase launch now. And it was initiated um, during the mid-1980s by Reagan and Gorbachev as part of calming the Cold War tensions. So this is the kind of direction we have to go in. Uh, Craig? Yeah, well, see, you've got many different international development uh, initiatives. One of them is, of course, the BRICS, you know, Brazil, Russia, India, China and South Africa. These countries are all combining together to cooperate around large-scale infrastructure development. It's completely different to what we're getting in the West right now, Elisa, where the intention amongst these countries is for mutual development. And this is where we're at odds with a lot of people about the role of China in the world. Their intention is for, you know, international cooperation through... You know, and peace through development. Mm. So you've got these massive programs like the ITO, you've got other programs in the world. The question is most ordinary people want cooperation and development, they don't want war. Mm. 
mm. and that's the the, the 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 thrust that we as an organisation are you know promoting and always have and it's interesting to note in this week's alert service there's a lot more leading figures in America diplomatic figures that are speaking out against the anti-China enemy image war drive which is important um, because look all regions states and nations parties factions creeds it doesn't matter where you come from we all have the same interests right now in this crucial period of history to make sure we work together and forge the right pathways that we come out of this and other crises unscathed yeah. so that's all we've got time for this week thanks craig yeah, thanks lisa thanks for joining us and see you again next week mm -hmm.